20-Minute History is an independent operation made possible with the help of listeners like you. If you'd like to support the podcast, you can do so through the Acast supporter feature linked in the episode notes, or by going to patreon.com slash 20minhistory. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. again, my loyal listeners, and welcome to this episode of 20-Minute History. I am David A. Bradbury, and today's installment represents a fantastic first in our show's short history, a very special guest. Kind enough to sit down for an interview with me today is the one and only Benjamin Bernier, the witty and brilliant host of the Thugs and Miracles podcast. Now, if that name sounds familiar, that's because we actually gave them a shout-out in the introduction to our Valentine's Day special last month. Over his last few episodes, Benjamin has generously promoted our show several times, and after discovering a mutual admiration for each other's work, we decided to put together this guest exchange. I'm sure that at least some of you have never heard of Thugs and Miracles, so I'll just say a few things before we get started here. First, check them out immediately. (laughs) The show is amazing. And secondly, TNM is a research podcast that examines more than a millennium of French history primarily through the eyes of its monarchs. I could tell you more, but honestly, why would I do that when you can hear it from Benjamin himself in his very own 60-second promo? Take a listen. Wars and love affairs, sieges and betrayals, curses and miracles. History is the story of people, the challenges they faced, the conditions they lived under, and the decisions they made. It's the contrasting story of brute strength and the intervention of divine grace. History, in short, is both the story and the tool of thugs and miracles. Join me, Benjamin Bernier, as we look back at 1,400 years of history in France, from the fall of the Western Roman Empire to the fall of the guillotine. Meet the pagans left behind by Rome, the bishops martyred to convert them, the Islamic armies and the Danish invaders looking to conquer them, the kings who rose to lead, and the queens who guided and controlled these kings. All of this and more is available right now on the Thugs and Miracles podcast. Hopefully hearing that has piqued your interest in his show. But if you're still looking for a little bit more, well... Look no further, because in our conversation, we had a chance to talk about some of the broader ideas behind Benjamin's work, his approach to recounting history, and the specific connections he has to some of his most notable characters. So, without further ado, please welcome 
Benjamin Bernier. All right, I am here with Benjamin Bernier of the Thugs and Miracles podcast. Benjamin, thank you so much for joining me and welcome to 20 Minute History. Well, thank you very much for having me on the show. Look forward to talking. Of course. Of course. So why don't we get started before we have uh, get into our list of questions that I have prepared for you. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Tell us a little bit about your show and uh, where we can find it. So Benjamin Bernier, uh, your show and mine are both on the That's Not Canon Productions uh, podcast network. And so you can find us there or on Acast or simply on any of the other podcast catchers. Thugs and Miracles is the only podcast out there by that name that I'm aware of. So that's <laughs> my name is Benjamin Bernier. And yeah, no, I'm living over in the UK. I have the very fortunate experience of living over here. Mm-hmm. My wife is living in Germany right now, right in the area mm-hmm. where my research and studies taking place. And I can't get there because of COVID. Uh, so I'm looking forward to, you know, a couple months from now being able to get back traveling again, but no, I, uh, I've gotten into all this mainly it all started because I was traveling. I was in France a couple of years back. I Bernier, obviously being a French surname, my grandfather is mm-hmm. French. Um, mm-hmm. where, where American- are you, are you from the UK originally? No, 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 no. I am just over here as a kind of work, work visa. And gotcha. so, yeah, just, uh, just doing my thing in that sense and taking advantage of this, the history in this area is amazing. Um, I bet. Yeah. California, everything is 20 minutes old. And so (laughs) over here, literally, I mean, there's I went to the Peterborough Cathedral down the road for myself, and it's Uh this huge Notre Dame-esque looking cathedral that you've probably never heard of. And it has two queens. I don't think so. No. Mary, Queen of Scots was buried there. Catherine of Aragon Mm -hmm. was buried there. It's just amazing to be in an area where literally all these things are just you can't go anywhere in this country without being 20 minutes from something amazing. Right. Right. Yeah, no, all that means they come back to the show. No, I uh, I was traveling around and I just I realized that, you know, my I have this grandfather who's French and I have all this, you know, kind of heritage. And I didn't know a thing about French history mm-hmm. really prior to Napoleon or, uh, you know, mm-hmm. the, the French Revolution. I knew heads got cut off. I didn't even really know the causes of all that. And so I just started digging deeper and deeper and deeper. And I am not a historian. I do have, you know, I, I happen to have a master's degree, so I know how to research. Mm. And I've just taken those talents and I've kind of applied it there. And then I, you know, as I'm looking at the topic, I like the fact that there's just some amazing, amazing stories that I was never aware of. And I think a lot of French people, if they went back and looked at their history, may not uh, have, you know, been aware of. And then on top of that, as I go into it, and I kind of start looking at it from the American point of view of how their history is. I think I'm looking at it with a different lens that maybe some, you know, even if a French listener were to go ahead and take a listen to what I was, maybe they would disagree with my outcomes. But uh, at the same time, I think they might also think that there's some interesting stuff in there that changes the way that they look at it just because from a different viewpoint. It'd be interesting to hear Go ahead and go ahead and give, you know, their point of view on American history. at this point. Right. Right. Well, first of all, I appreciate your uh, repetition of the 20 minute history motif uh, throughout your answer there. <laughs> Much appreciated. Um, and second of, right, 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 right. Uh, but second of all, you say that you're not a historian and gosh, l- listening to you, Thugs and Miracles uh, and many of the episodes as I have, you could have fooled me. I I very, very much appreciate the attention to detail that you pay to all of your characters and the 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 weight that you give to multiple interpretations and the weaving of those into a coherent story is is truly fascinating. And to all of my listeners here right now, I cannot recommend 
bugs and miracles anymore than I already have. It really, really, you, you're doing yourself a disservice if you don't go check it out. Now, that being said, I'd like to go straight into the questions because Please. you were just saying yourself that uh, you think that thugs and miracles, you're the only thugs and miracles on the uh, <laughs> podcasting <laughs> platforms. To my knowledge, that is correct. It's quite a distinctive name. And it struck me when I was first getting into your show, because if I had just come across on, say, any sort of podcasting platform, Spotify, Apple, whatever, uh, just come across a podcast that's called Thugs and Miracles, not in a million years do I think I would have assumed that that podcast would have been about the first couple of seasons would be about ancient French history. Uh, it, it's it's so striking, those use of two words, in particular, the word thugs. Now, I've got a guess, but if you don't mind telling me, who are the thugs you're referring to and why have you characterized them as such? So, honestly, I would almost go into saying that every single one of the kings that is researched in this really does get into the thug point of view. Um mm. You know, obviously, you can go back to a Clovis. There's stories in which Clovis, you know, he was disrespected by one of his leaders at one point. And about a year later, he came and it was over a vase. It was the, the guy wanted a vase and he destroyed the vase before Clovis could just take it for himself because he said, if you're mm -hmm. not going to I can't have it. Neither of us have it. And a year later, he came and he was doing an inspection on this people and he took the guy's axe and he said oh this is dirty he threw it on the ground and when the guy bent over he smashed him in the head with an axe and killed him on the Jeez. spot and i can't think of anything more thuggish right then then that's i mean like that's like the opinion but that's is the extreme on that spectrum but throughout mm -hmm. the entirety of the show you see more motifs along that line of just this abuse of power not or not maybe not an abuse of power but just whenever you're wielding power it is going to be a strong arm event in many cases the idea of soft power and you know behavioral decision making is really a very recent idea in the realm of governance right and so you know throughout the history and it actually thugs and miracles came from professor paul friedman it was uh, one of the open yale courses that's available for free online where he made huh. that statement he said we've entered into a period of thugs and miracles and with the rise mm -hmm. of the church you saw this idea that you know they're appealing to this sense of god and jesus and all this christianity and you know the the beauty of all this and on the other end you had these men who were trying to wield it and not just men women too that you know were also trying to come along and wield it and one of them in particular fredegunda is a incredibly right. just robust figure in history where you can't almost believe that she existed and mm -hmm. they are all very much have a thug tendency in them. So that's where I kind of, that came from. Interesting that you mentioned Fredegunda because she was one of the ones that stood out to me the most as I was uh, flipping through your catalog. I believe it was her that had sort of a, a bishop stabbed in a church. Is that right? That's, that's uh, the, yes, the very yes. short gist of the story. So uh, sort of an interesting question off of that, because you had, uh, uh, you began your answer with there's, there's not a King throughout this era that isn't a thug in some sense. Do you, do you find that to be, to be more true or, or less true or, or about the same amount of true as the, the women? Because you, you, you one might assume that with the women in, excuse me, in this scenario, they might have to try a little bit harder to get noticed and to exert 
that power and have people take them seriously with that power. Is that something that you find? Yeah, I don't think that you're going to find uh, one of the women that necessarily was, you know, just absolutely stabbing somebody or, you know, like smashing somebody's head with a, an axe like a Clovis in that very strong uh-huh. sense. But I don't think that their actions were any less thuggish for, you know, and I'm using air quotes in a right. purely, you know, in a on a podcast. Uh, but, you know, <laughs> and, and the reason I said they just had different ways of going about it. And I don't think that the application of power throughout history is necessarily just brute force. And it, mm-hmm. it doesn't mean that it's not just as horrible because of the fact that you didn't necessarily have to do it with a weapon in your own hand. Mm-hmm. Um, with her, you know, there's a lot of stuff about poisoning and stabbings and, you know, all these other things that she was kind of, you know, accused of. But, you know, I'd even look at this, a lot of this, the, the weaponizing of all this is the history itself. Uh, you know, they say she had somebody stabbed in a church, but as you come to find out, the person who was writing that had an axe to grind with her, for lack of a better analogy, mm. and was on the side of her rival, Brunhilde. When he dies, Fredegunda had already died by the time that particular biography, uh, Gregory Tour had died. But then Brunhilde comes on, you know, her, the way she's represented in history goes dramatically downhill from there. And I don't think it's because mm. she became a person at that point. I think it's because she didn't have her hype man, you know, making her look mm-hmm. better. And so it's it's a complicated question in the sense that, you know, obviously, yes, I mean, they had very thuggish intents. They definitely would do things where they would, you know, complicate people's lives. They would hurt people. They would order people killed. It was a little bit more hands on a lot of times with the men, you know. But at the end, you know, the way Brunhilde died was probably one of the most atrocious executions I can think of where they tied her to two horses running in opposite directions. You know, she was about a 70 some odd year old woman at that point. Right. And there wouldn't have been that level of retribution if there hadn't been a lifetime of kind of a, attacks and atrocities that she had been aware of or that she had been a part of that. Mm-hmm. Not to say it was right to have done that to her. Not to say, please don't take it that way. Yeah. I'm just saying though, that uh-huh. in the scheme of things, especially at this time where, you know, it was kind of an eye for an eye mentality. It was very much so, you know, seeing that she had done these horrible things and was deserving of that punishment. Thug behavior, thug consequences. <laughs> I don't know. Exactly. Um, exactly. Right. Okay. So that's the thugs, but it's thugs and miracles. So in what sense is, is French history in your mind influenced by miracles? Where does that come from? So if you look at the, just the cover art of thugs and miracles, it's literally a picture of Clovis at the battle of Tolbiac. And the story goes that he was in the middle of this battle and he was going to lose. And he decided at that moment, his wife had tried to get him to come to Christianity up before this point. He had pushed her off and pushed her off, stayed with paganism. And in the midst of that battle, he looks to this guy and his hand is raised to this guy. And he says, God, if you get me through this, if you land my people, if you give me victory, then I will convert everybody to Christianity. Um, mm-hmm. He went ahead and won the battle. And of course, he goes ahead and converts to Christianity, which is a very, very pretty way of saying it, but let's be realistic. It probably didn't happen quite that artistically. Um, he'd been yeah. Getting, yeah, he'd been getting pressured for a long time by the church, which was an upcoming force, especially in Europe. And at that point, it wasn't so much whether or not he was going to go with Christianity. It was what brand of Christianity he was going to go mm. with. The Goths who were to the south, who were very much into an Aryan Christianity, and the Catholics were into their form of Christianity. And there's some very, very minor differences between the two, which uh, come down to how you view Jesus. Mm. But it was more of an idea of what which one he was going to choose more. So it was inevitable that it was going to happen. And that's where the, the miracles come. So it was the rise of the church, the church's own battles to go ahead and kind of promulgate itself, to build these monasteries, to get bishops, to push all the other competing forms of Christianity out of the way, which, you know, gets into a lot of the stuff that goes on between the Byzantines and stuff further on down the road, not so much with the French. 
And then later on in the history, and we haven't quite got there yet, but you start to see, you know, you're going to see Islam come into this. And mm. that history is going to be there. And, you know, there's the Battle of Poitiers, which comes up in a couple hundred years in the history, is really a point at which, and I'm sorry about that, my dog just shook his head. <laughs> <laughs> no, but uh, that's why I mentioned the team at Thugs and Miracles. It's, you know, mm. my, my dogs are definitely part of the team. So, mm-hmm. no, but so that's where we're going with those. And Poitiers was an example of where Europe, in a large sense, has seen its history start going down different paths because the Islamic incursion into Europe was stopped at that point in southern France and really maintained itself into Spain for several hundred years after that. So all of this, you know, the, the religious aspect of it is, you know, it's the brute force and it's, you know, all these different layers of, you know, we still deal with them to this day. You know, when people look at, you know, how we deal with um, any given organization, whether it be, you know, the political, military, economic, social constructs or, you know, mm-hmm. it's we still look at stuff through those same lenses. And that's kind of where I was getting at. I use just kind of a little bit more of a hopefully fun title to get people interested. Right. You know? right. um, but that's really what it's looking at. You know, saying Pamisia French history is not exactly going to bring people running to the doors, or at least I wouldn't. Think no, no. <laughs> well, and, and it make it still it makes sense for sure, because, you know, as you've already talked about the thugs and the thuggish behavior, but miracles does seem to play a part in, in any sort of history that's this old, because and you'll have to forgive me because my my knowledge of ancient history is somewhat limited. It's not what I seem to specialize in in throughout my 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 studies but one would have to assume that especially as christianity was on the rise here miracles had a part to play in in political interactions as well as far as you know occurring favor with the you know the the populace but I th- I, i'll be honest with you and you know you say ancient history and i keep on coming back to the idea that this is still even modern history i mean even in france right now there's still you see it in the news every now and right. again where you see you know there's been a, a church that's firebombed or mm-hmm. you know, on the opposite end of this you know you also hear about mosques that are obviously having a lot of trouble charlie hebdo did not uh, bring a lot of good publicity to the islamic faith in france in this time and so you're still seeing people just having to deal with all these different ideas and topics and so yeah i mean and and a lot of it too is the the idea of wanting to have miracles Mm -hmm. um again was i saying about the biographers earlier it doesn't stop with just you know the stories of people's lives you start seeing um one of the best examples I'd probably give is the idea of the oil that was used to consecrate kings throughout history mm-hmm. at the Cathedral of Reims mm-hmm. was apparently found in the uh, tomb of San Remigius, who is one of the who's the one who anointed Clovis. And the Bishop of Reims just happened to find it. And mm-hmm. then all of a sudden he was easily to use that to kind of sell the idea of anointing all kings from then on forward to have their coronation in the Cathedral of Reims and gives that power of the church over top of the kings. But, you know, again, using this kind of quote unquote miracle of having found something, people want to have miracles in their lives. They want to find these things. And I think there are people who are willing to take advantage of the idea that people want to have, you know, miraculous ideas. And it plays into conspiracy theories, you know, from then and all the way to this day is, you know, because people want to believe their own echo chamber so badly. 
Right. And that's a fantastic way of putting it and an important consideration to take, especially since we're still in an era where the divine right of kings is a, a, a prominent idea that needs to be addressed. So, yes, absolutely fantastically put. So with that being said, we've got your title out of the way. So let's talk a little bit about your approach to French history, because throughout the episodes that I listened to, I think that the best way that I personally could characterize your approach here is marrying this sort of great man theory because you talk your your episodes center around French monarchs and um, kings and queens with more of like a, a Howard Zinn esque uh, people's history because you do give a lot of focus to how the common man would have been influenced and would have might have lived underneath the reins of these individual people. And I think that that's a very, very admirable endeavor, considering that the the life of the common man was not something that was popular to write about in a contemporaneous sense. I mean, you know, there was no Howard Zinn of the the 14, the, the 400s. AD. So um, how have you attempted to strike this balance in the stories that you tell in your podcast? So I, I think it's flattering that, you know, you, you would say that I was, you know, to the level of Howard Zinn. So I mean, like, uh, it was, it, no, I was, you know, I think that's a, it's a wonderful thing to be compared to is mm -hmm. for another, even if you don't agree with him, the fact that mm -hmm. he inspires so much controversy and so much, you know, a kind of reexamination of your thoughts. And that's, when I'm looking at this, like I said earlier, I'm not, I'm an American. Right. I have a French last name, but I am not French. Right. And I appreciate that. And I don't try to put on airs that I am somebody that I'm not. Mm -hmm. And I'm looking at this in a sense of, I've never grown up. Um, and I'm going to use Dagobert as one of the prime examples. But Dagobert sure. is this king who is still known to this day as Le Bonnois. He's the good king Dagobert. And there's been movies made about him. And there's been, you know, he's part of a children's nursery rhyme. Mm -hmm. And as you said, peel the onion on this, you come to find out, well, the reason he's part of the nursery rhyme is because people wanted to be able to sing songs about Louis the 16th back in the day. And they were making fun of the fact that the, the good, the good King Dagobert put his pants on backwards. And he was so incompetent, mm. pants on right. And if they had said Louis the 16th, they would have been thrown in jail. And so right. they, they had a name that they could use that fit into the dictator of the rhyme, who was still a king and who still ended up kind of meeting that, that, that idea of, you know, making fun of the monarchy. It peel the onion even further from that on Dagobert. You come back to when he was in history, and he's, again, looked at as this good king and the strong steward of the church and everything else. And realistically, as I kept on looking at him, I kept on waiting for the good part to drop. And right. I read all the histories, and I read all this stuff, and I kept on finding out, I was like, this guy's kind of a jerk. He's, right. <laughs> he's known that's, for his, that's, a, that's a mild way of putting it, I think. Exactly. He's known for his debauchery. He's gone around, you know, he's doing all these things. His one wife couldn't get pregnant fast enough, so he left her for a concubine. He eventually goes back to her, which I guess is the heartwarming part of the story, depending on how you want to look at it, and does have a child with her. If you, right. <laughs> yeah, if, you're, if you absolutely want to be, you know, just horrible about the whole thing. I'm not even going to keep going down that <laughs> But no, <laughs> he's involved in two, maybe three different attempts at genocide. You know, between the Jewish population in the state of that time, the Saxons, and then there's even another group, you know, down the Gascony that he went after. And it's just like every single time I turn, I'm like, this guy is a complete and total jerk. And how can people continue to look at him as a scraper? And I, my right. findings in that sense, I think will be 
different than what somebody might have. Well, actually, I mean, pretty much most of the histories up to this point. Mm-hmm. If you look at the, mm-hmm. the stuff that's written prior to, you know, the, the 14th sixth, or the 15th century, it's all very glowing about him. And it's only as people started doing a little bit more in-depth research and started looking at him a little bit more, you know, right. critically that they started to find it. And that's what I want to do. I want to be right. critical without being overly, without trying to find fault. I'm not trying. If Dagobert had been a great guy, I would have been able to say Dagobert is awesome. I love him. And right. here's why he had some, right. he had his flaws, he had his warts. We all do. And that's, you know, and I just couldn't find anything good about him. And now on the opposite side of that, you know, I'm going ahead and I'm finding people like Fred Agunda, who has historically mm-hmm. been written about as being this kind of like horrible, the, the archetype of just this horrible person. And when you really look at her life, she rose from being a servant at best, possibly a slave. Mm-hmm. She found her way into a position where she could go ahead and get with the king. And she took advantage of those opportunities. And sometimes her the way she took advantage of those opportunities may have been very rough around the edges. Mm. She certainly did not receive any good press for being the quote-unquote succubus who went ahead mm. and pulled King away from his wife and who did all these, you know, horrible things. And then as you go on, you know, she ultimately she held on to her child. She was able to bring him up to a reasonable age and then got, you know, before she died, she was able to hand off control of this you know the empire or the kingdom that they were in charge of to her son and ironically enough even though she didn't see it through to the end clothar the second who was her son was the one who ended up being the king who prolonged the line of the merovingians mm-hmm. and she beat her rival in that sense and i i always kind of wondered how really how bloody was she right and you also have to be realistic about these are often the sort of first stories the first accounts that you encounter But then you also have to put on your historiography hat and ask yourself, well, why why is uh, Dagobert getting all of this good press? Why is Fredegunda getting all of this terrible press, this terrible remembrance, if it were? And we can't discount straight away when you're doing research that, well, it's possible that Dagobert is getting all of this great press because he was a great guy. But obviously... As you had mentioned, that's not the conclusion that you reach and that you have to consider all of these different factors in in pursuit of a conclusion. Um, With that said, I do want to take it back to Dagobert for just a second Mm -hmm. and put on our very own historiography hats. Because you began a a recent blog post, I think it was published probably a couple of weeks ago at the time that we're recording this, Uh, and you began that blog post with this. There's a saying that you should never meet your heroes. Well, as I recently found out, you should never research them either. I wholeheartedly agree, (laughs) especially with many of the people that I have run into in my own first season of 20 Minute History. And as you said, the press for Dagobert prior to the 15th or 16th century, I think the word that you used was glowing. Why do you think that he got all of that glowing press? What were historians missing up until recently? What were they trying to do that biased the historical record in this way? So uh, this goes back to something we were talking about earlier with the historians in the sense of Dagobert was definitely the Carolingians, who are the dynasty who come after the Merovingians, wanted to carry on from a certain they wanted to show a distinction between the two dynasties. They also wanted to show that there was strength inside a certain dynasty. And so they were one of their uh, primary biographers of Charlemagne was a guy named Einhard. And mm-hmm. Einhard went ahead and he wrote a lot about the fact that Dagobert was this great king and did all these good things. And then he was followed by this period of almost 100 years of just do nothing kings. Mm-hmm. And that it was 
a natural progression to go from such a good king, go through this hundred year period of just pretty much worthless, forgettable kings, in his opinion. Mm. And then you arrive to the Carolingians who finally went ahead and overthrew the Merovingians with the blessing of the Pope. And mm. then went ahead and they rose to power. And of course, then he had Charlemagne and good things went on from there. And it's a rewriting of the history that I think was done intentionally with the effect of the government in that place at that time. And it persisted because realistically, how many people had the ability to go ahead and say anything other than if you were told that something was one way, you didn't have a the internet, you know, like when we sit at a bar and we have an argument, we jump on our phones and Google it real fast and we kind of end the conversation right there. Right. They just went ahead and they continue to perpetuate it. And something that gets said enough times kind of becomes fact over the time, you right. know, and it's, Again, we were talking earlier about you know, with your show that even in the last two centuries that you see people who are, you know, beneficiaries of a certain way of thinking off the top of my mm-hmm. head. You know, I can say, you know, when you look back on JFK, he's somebody who kind of has benefited from really good press mostly through the years. And when you start mm-hmm. looking a little bit more critically at him and what happened and how his his time in office had progressed up to that point and some of his other personal affairs and foibles, you can start to think like, well, maybe this person wasn't as great as we all thought he was. But then there's a certain segment of the population because of my parents' age, they were around when the Kennedy assassination happened and they don't want to speak mm-hmm. ill of the dead. It's a traumatic incident. That it's the historical mm-hmm. record skewed because people don't want it to be any other way they want camelot they want bobby or you know or jack kennedy jr saluting the casket and all and is you take that back a couple hundred you know years or centuries or you know millennia and i think it just gets built in over time and then you know you draw this back to somebody that i know pt barnum in your episodes that Mm. you spoke about is an incredible recipient of a lot of very warm you know, press that is certainly willing to look the other way on a lot of the things that he did wrong over the course of his life that are really detestable, to be quite honest. Right. And I think he's a, he's a, he's probably the best example I can think of in a contemporary sense from your show that, you know, meets into this whole idea that we're talking about with Dagobah. Where did this good press come? Why did this good press? And what does it say about the person versus the people telling the story? I think that that is probably... Uh... At, at least with respect to P.T. Barnum, but definitely with respect to Dagobert as well, the most important consideration to factor into your stories is not only what does this have to do with the person that is being told about, but what does this say about the people that are telling the story? And I think that that's a really nice, insightful thing to sort of chalk it up to. It's it's almost an inertia effect, if you think about it that way, that people mm-hmm want to believe what they already have believed. And that critical analysis is often not welcome because people want to look back on certain things fondly, especially things that they lived through. And you don't a lot of people just don't want to admit that they're wrong or that there might be a different side to that story. And I would guess with respect to Dagobert that that is a much, much easier agenda to push when, correct me if I'm wrong, a good portion of the populace is illiterate. Mm -hmm. No, I I agree. And I, you know, it's weird too, because I was just thinking that his Dagobert also has the kind of benefit of being so far in the past that people, people might not, because if you find out that Dagobert is a really horrible guy, he's a triple Mm -hmm. genocide kind of like just bully at best, you know, Mm -hmm. that, you know, that does it really affect your life nowadays. And the answer is no. So maybe people don't have the energy to go after that. You mm-hmm. look at stuff that's, you know, a little bit closer at hand and you start talking about, like, if I just say the term the 1950s 
Right. It's it, it brings to mind so many different thoughts and so many different ideas and so many people's head. When I was growing up, it was leave it to Beaver. It was the mm. nuclear family, and it was you know the one one dad goes to work, they have a car, a house, a garage, a whole nine yards. That was right. the 1950s in my head, and over the course of my life, even that's changed to a much more you know different idea of what that that decade was about. And I think you know mm-hmm. depending on who you ask about it, you're still going to get different answers. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, so much of history is really just what do you want to believe and how do you want to look at it? And that's where, you know, when we go back to the way we were saying about Howard Zinn, I think it's when you try to take the varnish off of things, you just try to look at it. You don't, you don't try to influence, you don't try to go ahead and say like, well, you just read the research for what it is. You put the facts out and you lay out the case. And at the okay. end, it's, it's kind of, where do you, where does that end up? And it's, right. it's interesting. It's an incredibly mm-hmm. interesting thing. Hopefully, right. you know, I think it makes the stories more interesting. I don't think that looking right. at Dagobert, see, when you look at the saints, they're not really all that much fun. Uh-huh. It's you know, hey, great things, and they helped the poor, and they went ahead and they made monasteries, and they did all the right stuff. And it's it's a good story, but it's not exciting. When you start talking about you know all the other things that they were doing, it makes for a much more intriguing story and why they were doing it. So we have traveled sort of away from, uh, from <laughs> French history just for a second. I appreciate the tangent, but we are safely ensconced uh, far away from from any discussion of Dagobert at this point. So I'll, I'll sort of just bring it back for a quick little conclusion here. In a sense, it, it would be almost cruel for me to ask you sort of like, where's this going? Because you're playing a long game. Very much. You've been doing this for about a year and a half now, and you still have more than a millennia of history still to get through. But you're in the middle of season two right now, and I'm going to be cruel. I'm going to ask you, where do you go from here? And do you find what would be some big takeaways from uh, what you've learned so far if you had to pinpoint them? So one thing that's kind of fun about right now is I really thought going into season two, because we're supposed to be coming up into the realm of the do-nothing kings, as I had mentioned mm-hmm. earlier, uh, post-Dagobert. And I'm finding out that much more happened in that time period than people give it credit for. A lot of the do-nothing kings get tagged with that because they were literally children when they got put into that spot. And then they died before they were able to take the reading. But that doesn't mean that there wasn't a whole realm of political intrigue going on around them. And so it's an absolutely amazing time. And one of the stories I'm working on right now is how the first attempted coup of the Merovingians uh, happened during this time. And, you know, you're talking about people, how they went about trying to do that, because there was a spiritual element of, like you mentioned, divine right of kings. That wasn't actually codified for another thousand years. But there still was that semblance of that idea of, like, this is the king. He's, you know, right. You know, the the church is behind him he's the highest authority and right. so i'm just I, I love reading these stories and finding out so much more about them instead of just simply going to wikipedia and saying oh do nothing kings hundred years blah 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 there's so much inside of that to unpack and so i really mm-hmm. thought that i was going to get all the way to uh charlemagne this this season 25 episode season it will be 50 episodes in and really my whole idea when i first started you mentioned a year and a half ago is i figured okay one one king per episode that's 88 mm-hmm. episodes. And so if I do 25 a season, that's going to be just under four years for this stuff. Right. And right. well, now I'm getting close to episode 50 and I have made it to, you know, the Merovingians. <laughs> so, right. <laughs> uh, yeah. uh, it's going to obviously take me a little bit longer than I was thinking it might. And I, and I love that because there's no reason to rush through it. If people mm-hmm. want to know more about different periods of time, there's certainly they can always jump ahead. The history's already been written. If they want me to explain right. it to them, it'll be coming their way down the line. Uh, right. Where I'm going to the, go with the show next, like I said, hopefully at the end of the season, we'll be to Charlemagne. And mm-hmm. really, that is one person that I'm starting to kind of almost get a you know sweaty palms and heart palpitations about because up to this point, not 
that many people really know who Clovis was. They don't know who Dagobert was unless they know him in the very um, just tertiary manner of, you know, having heard his name somewhere. Charlemagne right. people, his statue sits out in front of Notre Dame. He's somebody that, mm-hmm. you know, just the name itself that gets brought up in history, even if you don't remember why your high school history teacher brought the name up. And there's a lot that's written about him, and it's going to be a lot to have to unpack. It took me five episodes to get through Clovis, uh, mm-hmm. Charlemagne. We'll see where it goes. I could easily see, you know, becoming a multiple episode history. And, and hopefully you know, I, I live in, you said that I was very detailed and I really appreciate you saying that at the beginning of the episode. And honestly, it's because I live in fear of people mm-hmm. jumping, you know, it is time and people coming online and saying, well, you missed this or you didn't do that. And so I'm always looking at every single, you know, like, what if, what if, why did they do this? And trying to unpack the story as well as I can. And, you know, honestly, at this point, the way things are going, I can almost see season three becoming just Charlemagne. And if as right. long as the story, as long as the story remains intriguing. That's the other thing right. too. I, I like my listeners will get bored. And if I start getting bored, I think you're just gonna you're gonna hear that in the show. And I don't want that to happen. So I'm gonna try to hit Charlemagne in a way that's insightful, that you know is entertaining, and that hits all the right points and then moves on. And if that takes five episodes or ten episodes or twenty-five episodes, as long as it it always has the right tone being struck. That's what I'm looking exactly. for there. So exactly. um yeah, in about season five, I might finally start turning into the you know, the 10th century. <laughs> uh, maybe. Well, yeah. um, in any case, no matter how long it takes you, I sincerely appreciate you continuing to peel back that onion, as it were, of, of French history and just giving us all of the layers, giving us all of the time. The details are truly fascinating. And I really appreciate you being here. As we said at the beginning of the episode, you can find Thugs and Miracles on all your podcasting platforms on Acast. And a special thanks to Zane and all of the people at That's Not Canon for hosting us in their podcast network. Benjamin Bernier, Thugs and Miracles, Thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you very much, David. I look forward to hearing more of your show in the coming season as well. Take care. All right. Thank you. All right, folks, that'll do it for this one. Once again, please do yourself the favor of checking out Thugs and Miracles on your preferred podcasting platform. In addition to the dozens of fantastically detailed episodes covering hundreds of years of French history, you can also find the other half of this guest exchange, in which I sit down with Benjamin to discuss my own approach to history, as well as what to expect in our upcoming season. Links to TNM's episodes, website, and social media accounts are in the episode notes. And as always, if you'd like to support this show, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at 20MINHistory, and consider making a contribution through Patreon or Acast. Thank you for listening. I've been David A. Bradbury, and I'll see you next time. Small details are big surfaces, tight corners are odd shapes, flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum.